morning. Uh, the sermon text for today is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels with, about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord. I'll pray one more time before we jump into that one. All right. Oh, Father God, open our hearts this morning to your word. God, we ask, as always, that your spirit would shape and grow us. God, that you would give us understanding convict us we are needed as we study your word god so that this community might daily be shaped into the image of christ to the praise of your glorious grace amen and good morning good to be here kind of filled up during that first song a lot of you sneaking in Glad to have you. Uh, I'm, I'm here. I'm back. If I haven't seen you yet, I was gone for a long time, and then I came back last week. So I'm two weeks in. Last week, I, I started and kind of felt like a deer in the headlights. This week, I'm just rambling right out of the gate to keep that from happening. So it just takes a few minutes to remember what it's looked like to be stared at by a hundred or so people. As you probably figured out, we are picking back up in the book of 1 Timothy this morning. And we're almost done with the letter. We just got two more sermons after this one, and we will be finished. And then we will be moving into a series on the book of Malachi, the prophet. And we actually, or I actually, taught a series on Malachi over eight years ago. So back when the entire church was the size of our youth group now, I, mean, I think our youth group now is still bigger than it was, um, but Malachi is phenomenal. It's challenging and convicting and encouraging. So super excited about that. 
But today, we are rolling into chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. And as you just heard, like we have kind of a long text that we are working through. And if you're looking or following along in your Bible, you'll notice that this text we're looking at is split into two different sections. And, and really, if you just listened, how they're split up seems to make a lot of sense. Because at first glance, it appears kind of odd that I'm taking these two sections of Scripture together. Verse 1 and verse 2 are talking about bondservants or slaves. And then verse 3 through 10 are talking about false teachers and money. But I think they actually go together quite well. We just have to change our perspective slightly. I think our, our cultural or even like visceral, emotional response to the subject matter, especially in the first few verses, is not what Paul is getting at. We need to change our perspective, kind of like when you try and take a picture with the sun right behind someone. Even though they're only a few feet away, it makes the picture often unrecognizable. But all you have to do to fix the issue is simply change the perspective. You don't have to get closer or further away, just look from a different angle. And that is my hope this morning with these first two verses, which talk about bondservants. And then kind of roll this into the next verses and see the theme of how they really all fit together. And so these first two verses, as we just read, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So that the name of God and the teaching of God may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. This is the word of the Lord. And so right off the bat, let's just be honest. When Scripture talks about bondservants or slaves without a full-scale renunciation of the practice, it makes us uncomfortable, right? You can say right. Like, the Bible in no way condones slavery, but it's still hard for us to read instructions to slaves or bondservants. See, Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians 7 talking to Onesimus, right? One of the worst names to read in the Bible. If you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. If you can, then do it, but don't let that be what dictates your heart, your life, your existence. As we read in Colossians 3.11, Paul says, here, that is in the body of Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Or 1 Corinthians 7.22, he, he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he was, was free when he was called is a bondservant of Christ. We have been called into a new kingdom and a new culture that has one Lord, that has one king, the first fruits of the coming eternal kingdom. But we, as followers of Christ, are sojourners and aliens in this world. 
We are a people longing for our eternal home as we live among the chaos and corruption of sin. This world is not our home. Slavery still exists in this world. Not as much in America, but throughout history and to this day, in many places, slavery has just been a part of life. An ugly part. And I could try and soften the blow. You've probably heard it preached this way uh, and, and make it more palatable for you by saying, you know, bond servants in the first century in Rome, like, it was often a really good position. It wasn't always that bad. It was a way to climb the social ladder. People often volunteered to be bondservants. And that's true. But there were also horrible situations. People manipulated, marginalized, and abused, typically rich people doing it to poor people. People put and held in slavery for unrighteous reasons. So, the situation of being a bondservant, period, that it exists is hard to stomach. Being owned by another human being is an abomination. But with all of that said, Paul's words here to bondservants are incredibly clear. Be respectful. Work hard. Honor your earthly master. So we don't have to dive into the Greek to figure out what it is Paul is communicating in these two verses. The struggle we have with these words is is much deeper. It gets to kind of the very core of the rampant false teaching and manipulation of Scripture that was present in Paul's time and is still present today. And here is what that struggle is. What these two verses, along with all of Scripture, make abundantly clear, as much as we don't like it, is that Jesus didn't come primarily to fix your temporal struggles. Hear that? Jesus did not come to primarily fix your temporal struggles. He didn't come so you can live your best life now. He didn't come to make you rich. He didn't come to free you from that oppressive job or to make sure you don't struggle in this life. On the contrary, Jesus says this life will be hard. People will despise you for your faith. And he says, following me will only make your life harder. I don't know how we get to some of the things taught and thought in this culture, but Jesus says, loving me will make your life worse. The hope of the gospel is not that all your temporal problems are going to be fixed. It's not a social leveling up. It's not a hope of future political power and influence in some awesome government run by Christians. That wouldn't be awesome. It is an eternal, living, future hope that we will be with Him in glory. That sin and death and pain will be wiped away once and for all, and we will live in perfect unity with our God and with one another. This has to be our hope. Because just in this little community, we have seen deep struggle. 
We've seen marriages fail. We've seen cancer and sickness. We've mourned loved ones who have passed. And we need a theological framework of God's redemptive work in the world that doesn't break down when life gets hard. We need an understanding of God's word that brings hope when everything seems to be crashing around us. And the framework we need is this, that our call in this life as the children of God is to follow Jesus in glorifying the Father, no matter what situation we find ourselves in. That's why Jesus calls us to die to ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him. Those are not warm and fuzzy ideas. He says, die. And then he says, carry this thing you're going to die on, basically. That's not warm, happy, fuzzy stuff. Jesus is calling us to lay down our lives, ourselves, our agendas, what we think we're owed, what we think we've earned, and to look to the needs of others, to long to proclaim the glory of God's kingdom rather than trying to build our own kingdom. And this goes against every fiber of our flesh nature. So your job is hard. Your coworkers frustrate you. Maybe they're even holding you back from advancement. I would ask, is the way you act and work and live among your coworkers following the cultural norm of upward mobility? Moving up at all costs? Do you justify acting like the world so that you can claim your little piece of the world? Or are you looking to Jesus and the downward mobility of his life as he poured himself out in service and love and ultimately death so that we might have an eternal hope of glory? Would you trade that raise to see a soul saved? Would you show humility to someone who's frustrating so that others might experience the grace of Jesus, even if it costs you? That's where the proverbial rubber meets the road in our application of the gospel. Do we love the expansion of God's kingdom more than the expansion of our own? Are we doing all we can to ensure the glory of Jesus' name in the way we live? Are we fighting to defend our own? See, Paul is not talking about or taking some stance on slavery. He is peering into all of our lives and saying, Who is the king of your heart? Is it Jesus or is it you? Who is your first love? Who do you serve? What is the hope that drives you? Because if it is a temporal hope, if it's a hope rooted in how you experience this life, you will always be chasing something that is fickle and fading. Something never promised, but even if we were to achieve it, those things or those desires, we will still be empty apart from Christ, still grasping for things that can never satisfy. 
Paul is saying every struggle, every challenge, every tragic situation in this broken, sinful world is an opportunity to proclaim an eternal king and an eternal kingdom that can never be shaken. The only hope that cannot be stolen in an instant. We are all going to face difficult situations. We're going to be wronged. I mean, praise Jesus that we live in a country where freedom is at least assumed for most of us because that is not normative in much of the world. But when we struggle or suffer or are wronged, our response will let the world know where our hope truly is found. We will either defend what we have here on earth, our reputation, our ego, our position or our possessions, or we are going to point to a hope that cannot be diminished by any human being or any circumstance that we are faced with. So wherever you find yourself in life, whether good or bad, currently Paul is saying the call on your life is to honor God, to pursue righteousness, to lay your life down for the advancement of the gospel with your eyes fixed on this future promise, this future hope of glory in Christ. As the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1.13, talking to a church that is struggling, persecuted, in exile, he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that is the call. In the face of a broken, sinful world, we must be a sober-minded people. We must prepare our minds for battle, for action. We must set our hope fully on the joy of Christ's return in glory. Because if we are not, we are setting our hope on this life. And that will always lead us astray. The glorious return of our Lord and Savior is the power and the promise to withstand the struggles that will come in this life. And so when Paul gets into this next section, this idea, the same idea should hang with us. Because there are these false teachers who view godliness as a means to financial gain, to personal gain. They were some flavor of first century health and wealth false teachers putting forth this idea that faith somehow equates to temporal blessing and comfort. They were trying to build their own kingdom by manipulating people and manipulating God's word. Paul begins in verse 3 saying, teach and urge these things. So he's pointing back to what we just read along with all that he's communicated in this entire letter. How are we to live inside the household of God? He spent five chapters describing the life of godliness, what it looks like. So he says, teach and urge these things if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. 
He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. We track in here, there are teachers twisting the word of God and manipulating the gospel for their own gain, thinking that godliness, which really in this context is self-righteousness, the appearance of godliness, thinking that that's a means to their own gain, which we obviously understand in our culture, like all the false teachers taking credit cards over the flipping TV. Goodness. And calm down. <laughs> Not a big fan of false teachers. But then Paul says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So Paul does like this word jujitsu. Godliness is a means of great gain, but not self-righteous godliness, not self-glorifying godliness, not the type of godliness that looks around and says, I'm more godly than that guy or that girl. Not the godliness of the Pharisee who rolls into the temple with 700 pennies so that People hear every single one of them clanking. But the godliness that is content with God. The godliness that is content with what God has provided. That is the type of godliness that is great gain. Godliness, godliness that is not continually striving for more trying to build our kingdom or amass more things, but looking to Christ as our all in all and proclaiming salvation through faith alone. That is the godliness with contentment that is great gain. That is what Paul is calling us to. And then in verse 7, he continues, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take, cannot take anything out of the world. It's a very real statement, Right? You didn't come out holding anything. You're not going out holding anything. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Those who desire to be rich, those discontent with their place in life, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into destruction. It sounds like a big deal. The first time I wrote this, I accidentally wrote that punch people into destruction. And I think that sounds really cool too. But either way, if you are plunged or punched into destruction, it's bad news. If money is our ultimate pursuit in life, you may get it and you may not. But either way, it's a dangerous road. It is a misunderstanding of what matters in this life. You have traded the truth for a lie, and it will ultimately consume you. But godliness with contentment is great gain. 
God has invited us into an inner peace and confidence, into an eternal hope, an eternal promise. And Jesus is clear. This world will be hard. You will have tribulation. Unless Jesus comes back in glory, we are all going to either get old and die, or we're going to die before we get old. Those are the only two options. And while in America we have an expectation of life and liberty and the pursuit of whatever we decide makes us happy, those are not biblical promises, nor what the majority of Christians around the world expect from this life. If that were biblical, if that's what the Bible said, then we would have to apply that to the world of Christianity, and then we'd have a really big problem. But for a large segment of Christianity in the world, they don't live in abundance and affluence, nor do they live in the entitlement which we reside. They live in poverty and slavery and hunger and sickness and war. I mean, verses 1 and 2 probably speak to a lot of people in their current situations, just not Americans. And while it's easy to look upon their situation and have pity, I can assure you that the hope of eternal glory in Jesus shines far brighter in many of their lives than it does many of ours. Because it hasn't been dulled by the allure of worldly pleasure and entertainment. You see, in comparison to most of the world, we are the rich people in Jesus' parable. We're those for whom it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than to enter the kingdom of heaven. And just in case you're unclear, that's not possible, okay? Camel, big, needle, small, they don't work. That's why Peter says, who then can be saved to Jesus? Jesus says, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so hear me, there is no shame in having money, right? This is a church, we love people with money. There's no shame in being wealthy or successful. If that's you, praise Jesus. It can be a tremendous blessing. But Jesus says too, like, hey, be warned, right? Be warned. The perceived security of your wealth is dangerous. It's so easy to find comfort to find security in in what you've amassed, in what you have. And on the flip side, for those who don't have, in a society where we're constantly bombarded with image of those who do, and the misleading images about how great their lives are, there is an ever-present temptation to want more, to create an existence around acquiring more to spend your life pursuing an imaginary joy, a fleeting joy that neither those who we watch on TV or we ourselves will ever find by having more stuff. And we know that in theory, right? We're super wise and smart. But the cultural air that we breathe is consumption. It is entertainment. It is the pursuit of self-advancement and self-gratification at all costs. That is the air we breathe, whether we like it or not. This is why Paul says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
right? Always misquoted. It's the root of all evil. Like, no, that's not the case. But it is a root of a whole lot of kinds. I said lots of kinds. I don't even know what that word means. Whole lots of kinds of evil. So if money is the ultimate thing, it's the ultimate pursuit, the ultimate hope, it can lead us down some dark paths. And money really isn't to blame for that, right? Money's not, like, we're the problem. Because rather than looking to God, we'll say, these people that love money, rather than looking to God for their hope and joy, they look money in the eyes and say, I choose you. You will bring me hope. You will bring me life. You will be my protector. And that's essentially what's happening. And that's what Paul is warning against, right? Don't do that. The ultimate danger isn't money. The danger is misunderstanding what it is that we have been promised in Christ. To miss the eternal hope that we have because we cannot look beyond what's right in front of us. So it would be easy to boil this text down to information for slaves and false teachers are bad. But the overarching message is much bigger and much more challenging. Paul is getting to the very heart of our struggle with the gospel. The reality that this world is not our home. That we are aliens and sojourners called to live and herald not just a new kingdom, but a new kind of kingdom, an eternal kingdom. To live in such a way that makes the world think that you're crazy, and yet at the same time to desire to be a part. Rather than building walls around our castles, we invite people to eat with us at our table. Rather than spending our time at work making sure everyone knows how valuable we are, we spend our time making sure others are honored. Rather than sitting around our house wondering why no one has called to check in on us, we make it a point to ensure that no one feels unloved, that no one feels forgotten. Rather than jumping on the cultural bandwagon of amassing money to ensure our own comfort, we use our money to show the world that we love God more than we love our money. Because we know that this life is short. This life is temporary, and it will be painful at times, but we have an eternal promise. As the Apostle Paul says, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And I know at times it neither feels light nor momentary. But that is only because we cannot comprehend the eternal weight of glory. But it is a promise beyond all comparison. There is an unimaginable freedom and joy when we stop clinging to this life. When we stop trying to milk from this life things that it can never give. When we are set free to live and enjoy today for what it is. Embracing the mundane. Enjoying the celebrations. Treasuring friendships. 
and walking alongside one another when they struggle and when they're joyful. That is our call as the people of God, to love and care for, to support and serve one another with our eyes fixed on Jesus, using all our gifts and talents and resources to proclaim the glorious reality that one day all struggle and all pain and all sickness and all death will be over. But that's not today. We are a people longing for the return of Jesus. And we are a people called to honor Him and glorify Him above all things while we wait. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. God, even when it is challenging and convicting, God, we know that our only hope is found in you, that you are our strength and our joy. God, we ask that you would increase our faith as we live as sojourners and aliens in this broken world. God, help us present a different kingdom. God, and we pray for this world. God, we pray for this country. God, that you would continue to restrain the evil and the sin that seems only to grow and grow by day. And we pray with the church from Acts that we would look upon this danger and this fear and that you would grant us boldness to continue to proclaim the gospel, God. Let that be our response, a living, eternal hope. It's in your name we pray. Amen.